Hey, thank you, Shiona. I am so glad to be here with you guys. We are officially in the holiday season. Like, I know it starts in, um, well, I think there's Christmas commercials in September now, but we're definitely, like, this is the real holiday season. I hope that you are in a place where you have just a wonderful week ahead of you, spending time with family and rejoicing in all of the ways that God has blessed us. We are getting ready um, to kick off a new series today as we get ready to approach a new season in the church calendar. Next week is the start of Advent, and Advent is a season that is rooted in the anticipation of the coming of a Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we prepare our hearts for the arrival of a Savior, we're going to focus on a book that's going to do the same thing. Um, It's in the Old Testament. It is the book of Micah. And as we do that, we've also provided a really important, I think really exciting tool for how we as a church can continue to live into the vision we feel like God's called us into for this year. We want to be a people that pray like our lives depend on it. And as we enter a season of Advent, one of the ways that we want to pray as a church is actually on the the right-hand side of the lobby as you leave. We have a prayer board, and on that board it says, He shall be our peace. That's the name of the series that we're in. That is a key prophecy in the book of Micah about the person and identity of Jesus Christ. And on that board, you'll see some magnets. And each one of those magnets represents a different kind of prayer that we pray. Uh, Prayers for healing, prayers for those far from God, prayers for provision, prayers for our local schools, our mission partners, all of the different ways that we pray. And the reason we're doing this is not because if you put a prayer as a magnet on a board, God has to answer it. That's not how that works, right? They're not magic magnets. We found them on Amazon. They're cool. They're not magic. The reason that we're doing this is because prayer is inherently kind of an abstract idea. It's very difficult for you to see, touch, feel, smell a prayer, okay? But what happens when we can visualize spiritual practices is it forms our hearts. And our hope is that as we can see all of the ways that our church is praying, it will help remind us, form our hearts, and focus our prayers. And so by the end of this six weeks, there will literally be a mosaic of about a thousand prayers up on that board. And we'll have this beautiful picture of all of the ways that we as a community are depending on God to meet our needs. And so our hope is that you'll join us in this, that as you come in and leave anytime you are here, feel free to go and consider, what are you praying for? Who are you praying for? Is there a prompt that maybe even this exercise can help remind you to pray for people? Put it up there. Um, Let's paint a beautiful picture of how we depend on God in this season. And a special thank you to Shiona. She just did announcements. Um, She is our kids director. She also is incredibly creative and did an amazing job putting that board together. So when you see her, tell her thank you for how she is sharing her gifts and creativity with us. And so let me pray and then let's jump into the word of God together. Father, we ask that as we approach you today, that you would speak to us through your word the same way that you have spoken to your people through your word for thousands of years. We pray that as we see the reality of where we are, you would focus our hearts and minds on our need for a savior and that we would be a community that celebrates the truth of who you are and what that means for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So when we have the Bible, I think it's easy if we don't think about it to forget that this did not drop down from the heavens in this form um, in the 1950s in, in the United States, right? This actually is a collection of works that is inspired by God, that is authoritative in our lives as believers, that was written in a time, in a place, to a people. And for us to really understand the Word of God, it's helpful if we have an understanding of the time and place it was written to. Otherwise, it's incredibly confusing. 
confusing, especially the prophets of the Old Testament. And so let me paint you a little bit of a picture of the spiritual reality of God's people because when we see the spiritual reality of God's people, we're going to see our spiritual reality. So the book of Micah is a collection of sermons, prophecies, works by a prophet named Micah of Moresheth. So Micah was a prophet in Israel from about probably 735 to about 701. So 700 years before Jesus. At the time of Micah's ministry, the the kingdom of Israel really had split into two, right? You had the northern kingdom of Israel, and you had the southern kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem was. Micah prophesied to both of these kingdoms. Here's what happened. So when you look at the Old Testament, we have to understand that God's people found their identity primarily in the promises that God had made them specifically the promises that he had made about the kingdom and the land that he had given them. This was a foundational element of who God's people were. So when you go all the way back to God's covenant that he made with Abraham and then God's covenant that he made with David, it was a picture of God's design. God had a design for his kingdom. He said, if you will be my people and worship me, it will go well for you in the land. There's this inherent understanding that God's way would result in the flourishing and joy of his people. And because of that, he would bless them with a kingdom that would reflect his goodness to the world around them so everyone would see the truth, goodness, and glory of God through how his people worshiped him. He said, if you will do that, it will go well for you in the land. He said, if you don't, then there will be consequences, not out of God being vindictive, but out of God having to judge and deal with injustice. And so he had this design. He had this plan. His kingdom was going to work for the benefit of everyone. And he chose the Israelites to be his people out of his goodness. A lot like this cup was designed, right? This was perfectly designed for the purpose that it exists to fulfill. So I can hold it and my hand doesn't burn. Um, Coffee's not going to fall out of this onto our floor or my pants or my shoes. I can very easily sip this. It's, It's insulated. This works exactly like it's supposed to. By the time of Micah, something had happened to God's plan. It's really the same thing that happened to God's plan in Genesis at the very beginning, right? Sin had infected the world and God's people. And as a result of that, God's plan was no longer able to be fulfilled. So right now, this is broken beyond what I have the ability to fix. There is no ability for this mug to fulfill what it was designed to do. Can you imagine if I tried to pour coffee in this and drink it right now? Some of you are like, would you? Like, that would be great. I'm not going to do that, right? But, But listen, there is no chance. There is no chance that this can fulfill the purpose it was designed to. It is broken beyond repair. What we believe, what God's word teaches, is that this is a picture of the world that we live in. Sin has broken the world beyond what we can fix ourselves. And as a result of that, God's people were suffering. And so by the time that Micah was prophesying to God's people, the spiritual climate of the kingdom of Israel was terrible. There was rampant idolatry. They had lost most of the Old Testament. There was war. There was corruption. There was famine. And in the midst of God's people turning away, away from him and falling apart, something was happening in the north. And so what is now modern day Syria, Iraq, up into Turkey, there was what's called the Neo-Assyrian Empire that was in ascendancy. Um, it was, it was kind of kicked back off by a man named Tiglath-Pileser, who was just an unbelievably fascinating historical figure. If you want to read about somebody who just knew how to get things done, 
It's really interesting. Check him out. Um, By the time that Micah is prophesying, the king of the Neo-Assyrian Empire was a man named Sennacherib. He was an incredibly efficient builder. He was an incredibly efficient ruler and brought a lot of organization to a really dangerous part of the world. And the Assyrians get a bad rap. I think they're considered these really violent, barbaric people. They really weren't any different than anyone else around them at the time. They just did it more efficiently, okay? And so in the shadow of this rising empire that has all of these vassal states that are kind of living under its thumb, God's people are rotting. God's people are rotting. And in a lot of ways, that's our story. We, we live in a world that's continued to be impacted by sin. We continue to feel the effects of sin. We see the rot in the world around us and how it is destructive. We see the way God's plan has been broken. And we're left with this question, how do we fix this? How do we fix this? Even if you have a worldview that has nothing to do with scripture and would reject every truth in here, most people would have no choice but to look at the world and say something is deeply broken and we need to figure out how to fix it. The problem is when we try to fix it on our own, it never really works. So like we could argue about which piece goes where in this mug and how to put this thing back together all day long, It's not going to go back to being able to do what it was built to do, right? We can argue, well, what if instead of coffee, we put water in? What if we tried a different glue? I don't think that piece goes there. Um, Well, maybe we need to ask more people to help. That sounds like communism. We need to elect who's going to put, like, it doesn't matter what argument we have about putting this back together. We're not going to get it to where it was before it was broken, right? That's a picture of humanity. Everything that we try doesn't work. And the challenge for us is we live in a world that is much better at fixing some of these problems on the surface than we've ever been thanks to technology. So we get lulled into this way of thinking that things aren't that broken, right? Like, do we really need a savior? I know it's bad for some people, but it's pretty good for us. And as we go into Advent, it's really important before we begin the season of Advent next week that we get this message from the book of Micah. Sin's broken the world beyond what we can fix. We need to be fixed. We need to be saved not from worldly ideologies or or tangible conflicts. We need to be saved from sin. God's people need a savior. And so in chapter one of Micah, it's a legal indictment against God's people. It's legal language where he says, you have broken the covenant that God has made with you. You are guilty of idolatry, of disobedience, of a number of different things, and God is opposed to sin, so he has to do something to bring justice to this. In his perfection, God has to deal with sin. That's chapter one. Chapter two, he's going to start to get a bit more specific about what was broken, what that meant, and how God was going to move, okay? And so let's, let's pick it up here. He says, woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. Here's what that means. These people are so constantly scheming that even when they're lying in bed, they're like, what can we do? What can we do? To plot, like imagine a Bond villain just constantly plotting and think, maybe a cartoon villain. What can we do today? Um, Pinky in the brain, what do you want to do tonight? Same thing we do every night, right? Try to take over the world. Millennials are with me, like afternoon WB there. Um, everybody else, you just Google that. And so he's saying these people are so evil, they're just constant. And this is a little bit of, of metaphorical language, right? Like were they literally lying awake at night plotting evil? Maybe, maybe not, but you get the idea, right? These were bad people. He says, when the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hands. Why do they do the bad stuff they're doing? Well, because they can. They have the power and ability to do what they want. 
They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. This resonates really deeply with these people because remember, their land and their inheritance wasn't something that was given to them by man. They had this understanding that their land and their inheritance was something that was promised to them by God because they were his people. This is a spiritual inheritance and identity that these people had robbed from them. This wasn't just a legal and financial issue. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate, he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. So let's talk about what's happening there. This is a, honestly a poetic justice where God's saying the people who are oppressing their own people the elite of the time that were stealing land, that were mistreating, that were taking advantage of, the consequence of their sin would be the same thing that, would, that they had done would be done to them. So when he's talking about a taunt song in the they, he's saying that there will be a people that will come and take their land from them, that will oppress them, that will put them under a yoke. And so everything that they had done would be done to them, but by someone who was not actually an Israelite. And so God's saying the way that justice is going to happen here is that you will have done to you exactly what you've done, but it's going to be at the cost of this promise that God had made if they would keep his word. And so in verse 5, it's kind of confusing when it's talking about lot lines. Here's what would happen if you had a family that had an allotted segment of land. When, let's just say, disaster hit and the entire family died and there was no one to inherit it, what they would do is they would cast lots. There would be a process by which that land would be redeemed by other Israelites and they would decide how they're going to divvy it up. Does that make sense? So what God's saying to these people in this prophecy is that there's going to be no one to give you back what you've lost. This is gone. You're going to lose it. Some of you guys are like, you know, it's holiday season. I've had this conversation with my kids this week, actually. This sounds very familiar, right? It's very much, you're done. This is not coming back. Here's why. God's people had exchanged obedience to take advantage and oppress the poor. There was this exchange that had happened over time where God's people, instead of being obedient to what he had called them to do, got personal gain from oppressing the poor. I think that's actually the next point here in the message. And so let's think about this a little bit. What happened? How did they get from all of the stories that we remember in the Old Testament where God's people are worshiping him and have been delivered and were, were this, this group of people that were fulfilling the promises that they had made to the Lord? How did they get from there to this? How did they get from there to this? What happened to get them to a point where they were eating their own people alive from personal gain? So remember, sin's broken everything. When God brought his people into the promised land and set them up, we have a very clear request that they made of the Lord. They said, God, we want a king like everybody else. You know your Old Testament history? After the book of Judges, when they had inhabited the promised land, God's people said, we want a king. All of the people around us have kings. It looks like that works pretty well. We want to be a big deal. You need to give us a king. And God said, you don't want a king. Here's why. If you have a king, you're going to be oppressed and taxed. 
Why did God say that? Is monarchy bad? Is this, is this the seeds of Western democracy hidden beneath the sands of the Bronze Age? No, that's not what this is. What this is, is God saying, here's how human nature works. Sin has infected everything. If you want to do life outside of the way I've designed it, it is going to go bad for you. Why? Because everything is broken. If you put people in a position of power, the natural gravity of that is going to lend itself towards corruption and dishonesty and violence. And listen, I think that if we're honest with ourselves, God has thousands of years of human history across a lot of different governmental models and cultures and times that would back up the idea that something in us as people has a tendency to not handle power well, right? We can't even put on a soccer tournament anymore without massive human rights violations and financial impropriety. It's soccer. It's soccer. How do you, how does soccer get corrupt? Sin. Sin has broken the world. And so God's people said, God, we don't want to do it your way. We like the way everybody else does it. And sure enough, over time, it wasn't just the governmental systems that God's people liked. They looked at the way that people would worship these pagan idols. And they said, you know, that looks pretty good. God's not coming through in the way that I think he should when I think he should. Maybe we should try this. And slowly over time, the degradation of God's kingdom had nothing to do with their political system. It had everything to do with their hearts. Because over time, they didn't just exchange God's model for government for the world's. They also exchanged God's model for worship with the world's model of worship. And so the way that they got here was because they stopped acting like God's people and they started acting like people who didn't know him at all. And so their hearts ceased worshiping God and trusting God and started to trust the systems of the world. How the people around them handled money, how they handled sex, how they, basically here's another way to reframe this. All of the problems that God's people were encountering because of sin, they stopped trying to solve the way that God had called them to solve, which is dependence on him, worship of him, and obedience to him, and started to solve them the way the world started to solve them. That's the gravity of sin. We can fix this. We don't need God. We can fix this. And all of their effort to try to fix these problems led to an unbelievably corrupt society where the poor were taken advantage of. Why? Because the human condition, apart from God's grace, is unfortunately hopeless. Like, we can make a little bit of progress, but it's a very much a two steps forward, one step back progress, right? And the reason we know this is because look at all of these, these fixes that we've tried to install in society over the last hundred years. How's that gone for us, right? The sexual revolution was supposed to fix everything and equalize things. Well, then why do we need a Me Too movement? Why is there sexual assault in Hollywood if, 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 if sexual liberation is going to fix all of our sexual problems? How is there sexual assault in the most sexually liberated place on the planet? Maybe, maybe it's because we can't fix sin with our good ideas, right? Apart from God's plan, we always are going to go back to this broken system because we can try to put this thing back together all we want. But the reality is we are broken beyond what we can fix ourselves. So we can look at the state of these people and we can say, this is our state. This is our state. It's not just the Israelites that have exchanged obedience for personal gain at the expense of others. That, that's us. That's what sin does. And it's so interesting when you look at this through the lens of God's covenant promise to his people, everything that they were stealing and taking was ultimately a promise of God meant for the good of people. And the way they twisted that was saying, I'm going to take this good that God has promised for others, and I'm just going to use it for myself. I'm just going to hoard this for myself, for my pleasure, for my gain. And, and they took what was good, and they twisted it into a selfish end. Isn't that sin? 
Isn't that sin? We take the good promises of God and we pervert and twist them for our own personal gain. And in doing so, sin destroys everything around it. Everything around it. And so they, they try to fix it, right? And I'm, I'm going to be honest, this might surprise you. Micah wasn't super popular in his day. Uh, there were two categories of prophets in the Old Testament. There was what was called false prophets and true prophets. Do you know how you knew the difference? It's really simple. If your prophecy came true, you were legit. If your prophecy didn't come true, well, then you were a false teacher. It's really easy, right? And so there were a lot of prophets that didn't care for Micah. And so in verse 6, it says, don't preach, they preach. One should not preach such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. He's saying there's this group of prophets that are like, hey, stop saying this stuff. It's not going to happen. We're going to be fine. God just wants to love us and bless us. You're bumming us out. Would you stop telling us all the things about our sin? We'll, We'll be okay. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately, my, prison, my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. This is another way of saying they just send people off to fight their battles like they take poor kids and say, hey, you go fight the war and not even worry about it. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, pointless words, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher of your people. Somebody's like, amen, it's SEC football season. We're going to preach about beer? Let's, let's, let's frame this a little bit, okay? So basically what he is saying is that if you had a guy that came in and wanted to talk about all the ways that God wanted to materially bless you, that would be the prophet and preacher that these people wanted to hear. That's all they wanted to listen to. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jerusalem. Hang on, let's stop there at verse 11 for a minute. So basically, here here was the way they tried to fix it. Because I think when you look at multiple accounts of this phase of the kingdom of Israel, there were a lot of people who saw issues, but, but they had different ways of trying to fix them. There was unrest. Not all of God's people were thrilled about being oppressed, as you can imagine. Again, they were not in a perfect place. There was a lot of political uncertainty and military danger around God's kingdom at this time. Um, As the Assyrians were trying to reorder the world around them, they had some problems with the wars of succession. They had some problems where these kingdoms around them would say, you know, we're tired of paying them protection money. We should get together and try to overthrow the Assyrian empire, which, spoiler alert, that was always a bad idea until it wasn't one time. But for the most part, that ended very, very badly for the people around them. And so what was happening with the northern and southern kingdom, they were being sucked into a lot of this geopolitical political conflict. And in this uncertainty, there were these countries, for lack of a better word, around them saying, will you ally with us to overthrow and revolt against the Assyrians? Everyone else is doing it. They're weak. There's a new king. We don't know about him. This is the time if we want to get rid of these guys. And there was a lot of debate about what they should do. They were very much a society at a crossroads. And so not surprisingly, the the priesthood of Israel had a lot to say about this. They were a theocracy. They were a people that believed they had been established by God and were governed by a God that had promised them good things. And so even the false prophets would say, yeah, hey, here's what God wants. Here's what God wants. Now, shockingly, the prophets that people wanted to listen to would generally say things like, God just wants you to be happy. God's ultimate desire is to bless you. It's in the Bible. Let me read you a verse. 
if you just want to keep giving to the temple, God will give you back 10% more. They might not have said that. I don't know. That could be a more recent application of this concept, right? But, but the people love listening. And so here, here's how they tried to fix it. Self-serving religion, right? But it didn't fix the problem. Self-serving religion doesn't fix the problem. And here's why. Here's why. Because ultimately a self-serving religion doesn't deal with this issue right? It has to either pretend it's not here or, or self-serving religion says, listen, these people over here are broken. You don't need to worry about your sin. And that's kind of how I think it's evolved for us a little bit, right? If we play this out to where we can miss this, here's what self-serving religion looks like. Obviously, Christian nationalism's not great. Like, God doesn't love America more than other countries. He loves everyone because of Jesus Christ, okay? So, so we don't really have to talk about that as much. Here's, here's the challenge for us. With self-serving religion, I think the challenge that we can run into is by saying, you know what, we're fine. There is sin and brokenness in those people over there, right? Because at the end of the day, what God's people were doing was saying, hey, those people to the north, the Assyrians, they're evil. God's not going to let them take us over. They're the bad guys. You're fine. Just keep doing what you're doing. Don't worry about it. Don't listen to Micah. He's got, you know, he kind of lives out in the country a little bit. He's just, he's one of those people. You just got to ignore him. He's a kook. And so what they were inherently saying was that we don't have to worry about our sin. We're not the ones broken. Those people over there are. That's self-serving religion. Hey, you're fine. Don't worry about it. Here's the scapegoat. And I think this is one of the dangers that we have because we live in a society that is so increasingly tribalized and filled with vitriol and anger. If you would have told somebody in like the early 90s at ESPN that their most popular show was going to people just screaming at each other about opinions on a third string quarterback, I think they would have laughed you out of the building, right? That's the world we live in now. And so in doing that, a self-serving religion is you don't need to worry about your brokenness. If, if we could just fix the other people, it would be fine. And it's infiltrated the church in a serious way, right? Like you have the liberals that would say, the conservatives need to listen to this because our brokenness is because they oppress the poor and don't care about social justice. Then you have the conservatives that would say, the liberals need to listen to this. Our brokenness is because of all the weird sex stuff they want to teach and corrupt our society. Hey, hey, what if they're both right? What if the issue isn't who's at fault? What if the issue is that we have a sin issue that we can't fix? And so if, if we think we're going to fix our sin problem just by empty self-serving religion, then we're going to continue to find ourselves empty, because we can't perform well enough to put this back together, right? And we're even going to see this idea evolve in Micah where he's like, look, you can sacrifice all the stuff you want, but if your hearts are not aligned with the truth of who God is and what it means to follow him, you're not fixing the problem. You're not fixing the problem. But I think it's easy for us to want to find the voices that are going to affirm the things that we want to be affirmed about ourselves and ignore all of the wounds and issues and baggage that we bring into whatever sphere we walk into. Not because we're inherently worse than anybody else, but because everything's broken. And if you got to listen to Amanda Stone's Trauma-Informed Ministry webinar last week, if you haven't, I would highly encourage you to do that. It's on our YouTube. One of the realities that she talked through was trauma at the end of the day is a result of a deep brokenness in the world around us because sin isn't this light casual thing that we can kind of laugh off or perform our way out of it's a deep wounding that all of us have had inflicted on us and if we don't pay attention to those woundings then we'll just pretend that like we can put a band-aid on it and and perform our way out of whatever issues we're having 
And this was the self-serving, shallow religion that God's people loved. They didn't want to talk about their idolatry. They didn't want to talk about their sin. They just want to say, hey, God said some good stuff in this Bible verse over here. Let's just talk about that. And it was never going to save them because it didn't address the problem. And so as God's people that continue to struggle with this idea today, we have to allow ourselves to be confronted with this reality. We cannot fix what is wrong with us on our own. We can't preach good enough sermons. We can't write a big enough check for Brazil. We can't serve enough. We can't go on a good enough mission trip. We can't not use the F word for a long enough number of days in succession that is going to fix the problem that we have because the deep problem that we have is we're all broken. Sin has destroyed the world that God created, and we need a Savior. We need a Savior. We've tried everything as a people outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and none of it's worked. And none of it's worked. And so Micah is very clearly reminding these people very, very early on in this book that they live in a broken world. And everything that they're trying to do to ignore it or fix it is miserably failing because they're doing it outside of God's design. So let's look at how he closes because this is really important and this sets the tone for the entirety, not just of this book, but of the Advent season we're going into. In verse 12, he says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They will break through and pass the gate by going out by it. Their king passes before them, the Lord at their head. So this is a prophecy of hope. And there's a few different sort of perspectives as interpreters look at the original text about what this is a prophecy about. But it's really kind of twofold, okay? There's one prophecy, there's one aspect of this prophecy that's eternal. And that's God promising to gather and save his people, okay? That is the eternal reality of this prophecy. The underlying, more immediate aspect of this prophecy that most people would say is that this is talking about the time, we'll get there, this is talking about in the near future when the Assyrians would surround Jerusalem and God would save his people from that siege. And so either way you look at it, both of those can simultaneously be true as we interpret this because the picture we have painted here is that everything that is threatening God's people surrounds them and is trying to destroy them, God will show up and save his people. In the midst of their sin, in the midst of the mess, in the midst of the destruction, Micah is giving us this picture of the character of God, that God is a God who saves his people. In the midst of everything they had done, in the midst of all of the injustice, in the midst of all of the idolatry, God still says, I will save my people because I love them. And, and that's, this, that's this idea that we've got to end on, is that God saves his people from the destruction of sin. So for us, this is why we worship. This is why we go into Advent as a people who have a hope. This is why we understand that church is more than just a place we go. It's, it's a place that we are a part of. This is why we believe that when we pray to God, he hears us. And why we have this hope of eternal life. And why we evangelize. And why we love one another. Because everything about who we are is one for us by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's not because of our own efforts. Our own efforts don't get us anywhere. They just make new messes that we didn't anticipate when we tried to fix the problem in the first place. Because we can't fix this. We can't fix this. Just like God's people couldn't fix their problem. The gravity of sin prevents us from fixing anything. We need a savior. We need a miracle. We need grace. 
And it only comes from the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Micah, even 700 years before Jesus is born, is going to begin to point God's people towards this reality. And you're going to see the echoes get louder and louder as we go through this book. That there is a Savior coming to fix what is broken. And that's Advent. That's what we are getting ready to start next week. There's a Savior that's coming to fix what is broken, and it's our only hope. That's it. We live in a broken world. We can't fix ourselves. We can't fix society. There's not a political ideology. There's not, there's not a financial scheme. There's not like a social program. There's nothing that's going to fix this outside of Jesus Christ because nothing deals with sin the way Jesus dealt with sin. Scripture teaches that Jesus died on the cross, took the punishment for our sins that we deserved so that we could be forgiven, made innocent, holy, and children of God. Nothing else accomplishes what Jesus accomplished. There is only one way that God was going to save his people in an eternal sense, and that was the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we celebrate the coming of Jesus because we see a Savior that's coming into a fallen world to fix the mess that we've made. And so today, as we continue to anticipate a Savior, as we prepare to celebrate the coming of Jesus, we're going to do what we do every week. We're going to do what we center our worship service on. We're going to celebrate communion because this is a tangible reminder of the truth of what saves us. It's not our effort. It's not our good works. It's not our great ideas, right? It's not our nationality. It's, it's not how much money we have. It's literally the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The person work of Jesus is our only hope. And that's great news because it's more than we need. And so today, as we sit in this space that's, that's kind of hard to sit in, we're confronted with this reality from God's word that, that we're broken. We're broken. We don't work the way that we're supposed to. We live in a world that doesn't work the way that it's supposed to. We still have injustice. We still have people that are oppressed. We still have brokenness around what it means to be what God has created us to be but we have a hope, but we have a hope. And we're gonna talk more about that hope next week and the week after and the week after. And we're gonna see that hope get louder and louder and louder as we get closer and closer and closer to Christmas. And so today, as we're faced with this brokenness, we're not facing this brokenness without a hope. And so I just wanna invite us as a people, as a church, to come to the table with a confident hope that in his resurrection, Jesus has fixed what is broken in us. And that we can worship him without guilt. We can worship him without fear. We can worship him without a doubt that he is there for us because Jesus died on the cross to save us from what only he could save us from. And so would you pray with me? God, thank you for your word. God, thank you that as we confront the brokenness of the world around us, God, that we are able to see clearly that you are our only hope. And just as Micah promised that you would save his people, Micah also promises that you're going to save all of us. And so, God, I pray that as we take communion today, we would take it with a clear understanding of who you are and what that means for us, that you would root our peace and our hope firmly in you and not in the things of this world, not in money, not in politics, not in, not in great ideas, not in religious performance, but only in you, God, only in the hope that we have through you. That would be the place that we rest. That would be the place that we look to. And in that hope that you would birth a love for you that helps us be a part of what you're doing here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.